untangling what that question actually asks because all of the following are probably true. There are aliens out there. They're probably too far away for us to know. There are, there is something real to the UFO and UAP phenomenon. You know, the government now calls these UAPs for unidentified anomalous phenomenon. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Are we alone? The question of whether human beings on planet Earth are the only life forms has inspired science, religion, and philosophy, and it has animated generations of conspiracy theorists who assert that the U.S. government has been engaged in a decades-long cover-up of what it knows about extraterrestrial intelligence and unidentified flying objects, or UFOs. Best-selling Vermont author Garrett Graff has just penned an authoritative new book, UFO, The Inside Story of the U.S. Government's Search for Alien Life Here and Out There. Graff traces the origins of the UFO conspiracy theories and takes a serious look at what scientists and the government do and do not know. Graff's previous books include Watergate, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. Garrett Graff has spent nearly two decades covering politics, technology, and national security. He's the former editor of Politico and a contributor to Wired and CNN. Garrett Graff, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me. When you you were last on the program last year talking about a very serious topic, Watergate, and now you come back, and I do want to say for the benefit of our listeners, since they can't see you, but I can, you are not wearing a tin hat, but you are writing about UFOs, which has long been associated with the tin hat crowd. So uh, explain how a, a reporter with your long history and great gravitas for the issues that you write about, um, ended up writing a 500 plus page book about UFOs. Yeah. Um, So as you said, I come at this really as a national security writer. I am not uh, a ufologist. Um, I'm not someone who grew up on Star Trek uh, or, you know, the reading the, uh, you know, sci-fi novels. Um, What struck me uh, is this tenor that we have seen change in national security circles, in particularly around Washington in the last couple of years, where serious people have begun to talk seriously about UFOs. And that conversation really began to shift in 2017 when Politico and the New York Times did a series of reporting around a uh, outlining a, a then unknown Pentagon program focused on UFOs and reporting on a series of strange encounters that Navy pilots, Navy aviators had had with objects that they could not explain, things that moved in ways that they could not explain at speeds that they could not explain, technology that they did not believe the U.S. could counter. And you began to see uh, in the years since, you know, growing interest on Capitol Hill in this subject, growing interest in the intelligence community around this subject. And for me, there was one particular moment that Uh, piqued my interest and in many ways launched this book, which was in December 2020. uh, John Brennan, who was just then uh, wrapping up the better part of a decade as the CIA director and White House Homeland Security Advisor during the Obama administration, gave an interview to a DC blogger named Tyler Cowen, where he said, in essence, in terribly tortured syntax, uh, there are some things 
out there flying around that we don't know what they are. It puzzles me. And it's possible that some form of this phenomenon could constitute something that could appear to us to be something like a new form of life. And that to me was a really remarkable comment coming from a senior national security leader. Because I figured there couldn't be too many things that puzzle John Brennan after a decade atop the CIA and the White House Homeland uh, Security apparatus. That, you know, if John Brennan woke up in the morning with a question, there were there's a $60 billion a year intelligence apparatus that was in charge of answering it for him. You know, thousands of analysts and uh, intelligence officers and operatives and signals, intelligence intercept networks and sensors and satellites that would try to answer it. And so if John Brennan was leaving office and there was still something out there that puzzled him, uh, that felt to me like a good topic for a book. Um, and, and what I tried to do with the book is weave together two threads that are normally treated, I think, by journalists and historians as separate stories. One is, as you said, this, you know, kooky tin hat, uh, tinfoil tin hat UFO people here. And then these serious astronomers doing serious science looking at the search for extraterrestrial intelligence out there. And that it, to me, those are obviously very related stories. And so trying to tell this narrative as an 80 year story of trying to understand the mystery of UFOs as well as our evolving understanding of this incredibly fundamental human question of are we alone in the universe? You write early on that a hunt for them, UFOs, is actually a story about us. What do you mean by that? It's a couple of different things. Um, one is... One of the things that really surprised me in diving into this story, um, particularly as someone who has written uh, several books dealing with the Cold War at this point, is how much of the history of UFOs is inseparable from the Cold War. That the, the modern UFO age, sort of the modern flying saucer age, really begins in the summer of 1947 with an Idaho businessman who is flying in his plane near uh, Mount Rainier in the Pacific Northwest. And he spots nine saucer-shaped objects flying through the sky at tremendous speed. And he lands and tells friends about this, gets picked up by the media, and kicks off this... Uh, you know, summer of fascination with flying saucers. Ultimately, there are, uh, you know, saucer sightings all over the United States that summer, up into Canada, 34 states total that summer, including an incident in Roswell, New Mexico, that we now know as the infamous Roswell crash. But that, it, that during that summer was sort of just one of the background of the noise nationally of these sightings. And it sends the government into a panic because in the summer of 1947, what the government is worried about is not aliens, but the Soviet Union and the Cold War. And the fear of those flying saucers in that first summer is not that they are aliens, it's that they are secret Soviet spacecraft being built by kidnapped Nazi rocket scientists. Because what is the United States doing in the summer of 1947? We are trying to build our own rockets and missiles and get into the space race um, with our own set of Nazi rocket scientists that we have brought over from Europe and put into places like Los Alamos and the White Sands Proving Grounds to 
try to harness this new technology. That's the summer that the National Security Act of 1947 is passed, that you have the creation of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the uh, the modern Defense Department, the creation of the post of the Secretary of Defense, the creation of the CIA as the first peacetime intelligence agency in the United States, and the creation of the Air Force as a standalone military service branch. Because up until then, of course, the Air Force had been part of the Army. And the Air Force's first crisis is these flying saucers, trying to figure out what they are, are they a threat? Are they secret Soviet spacecraft? And you see this continue, you know, decade after decade, that this, uh, this cycle of sort of public sightings, often fueled um, by media attention and popular culture, um, you know, creating national security crises that fuel the imagination of pop culture that then fuel more sightings and more stories. Um, and it becomes this sort of self-reinforcing feedback loop decade after decade after decade. Um, well, well, let's take one of those, the Roswell incident. It's gone by many names. It's kind of the mother of all UFO theories. What actually happened in Roswell, New Mexico? So the Roswell story is a fascinating one for a couple of different reasons. In that summer of 47, about two weeks after that first incident with Idaho businessman Kenneth Arnold um, and his saucer-shaped objects, a rancher outside Roswell named Mac Brazel comes into Roswell and reports that there's some strange wreckage that has landed on his ranch. The sheriff in Roswell sends him over to the Roswell Army Air Corps base. And it is the, the Roswell Air Force Base in that summer is actually the most elite fighting unit in the entire world. It is the base of the silver-plated B-29 bombers that dropped the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It is the only nuclear-equipped fighting unit in the entire world. The commander of that base uh, is was actually one of the backup pilots on uh, those atomic bombings. Super serious guy, well-respected flyer. He, he sees this wreckage and thinks that he has solved a mystery that great we have found one of these flying saucers that everyone is talking about you know tells his public affairs officer uh put out a press release saying the air force has recovered a flying saucer great news and he sends that flying saucer wreckage off to the headquarters of the eighth air force in fort worth texas Press release goes out, wreckage goes off to Fort Worth. In Fort Worth, they very quickly look at it and realize it is in fact a military balloon and, uh, and very quickly put out a statement that says, you know, sorry, we were mistaken. This was not a flying saucer. This was a military weather balloon. The whole thing unfolds in about six to eight hours. Um, it's very quickly forgotten. Uh, the Roswell crash is not mentioned for decades again in the literature of UFOs. Then, you know, part of what was surprising to me about this book is, as you mentioned, my last book was about Watergate. And it turns out that the second half of this book on UFOs is an odd sequel to a book on Watergate. Because the second half of this book is really a story of the collapse of truth and trust in government and institutions. And you see in the wake of Watergate and Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers and 
uh, the, the church and the Pike Committee hearings, the rise of really dark UFO conspiracies, um, you know, alleging that the government has recovered alien spacecraft, recovered alien bodies. Um, the more extreme versions of these conspiracies hold that the government has actually uh, entered peace treaties with alien civilizations that allow them, uh, you know, allow the military access to technology in exchange for letting the aliens abduct and probe uh, Americans. Uh, you know, really dark stuff. There's some allegations and conspiracies about, you know, actual battles between U.S. special forces and alien uh, civilizations in the American Southwest. And Roswell sort of reemerges in the, the 70s and 80s as the sort of main focus of these conspiracy theories and the idea so it, it it kind of becomes almost a a template or a model on which you can hang current social anxieties political fears um it's sort of a cipher it can be anything it wants to be it, yes and i think there's a, there's a weird sort of straight line from these dark conspiracies in the 19 uh 1970s and 80s to our current politics um because i think this is really where you see the idea of the deep state first appear in our political culture and the idea of the government being capable of, you know, not just extreme cover up, but extreme sort of lies and brutality and trade off, you know, of American lives and American sovereignty to a higher power. Um, it, it's you know, kind of the foundational cover up. Yes. The and that it becomes, we are selling out to alien space solar systems and planets and exactly that this this is um you know where you have sort of the the emergence of this like shadowy cabal who is actually the people who run the u.s government you know beyond and above the elected leaders because they are the ones who actually have made the peace treaties with the aliens and you know keep the crashed alien spacecraft um uh, under area 51 so we talk about this as this kind of a you know the, the mother of all cover-ups you do say that there is a government cover-up of ufos but it's not what most people think so explain yeah um you know and this is where this is where you stumble up against a lot of the challenge of reporting on this subject, which is the landscape of UFO history is littered with actual government cover-ups. What we now understand from a series of revelations in the 1990s uh, in the Clinton administration is that Roswell was a cover-up of a secret government project, just not one having to do with aliens. That what actually did crash in Roswell in the summer of 1947 was a weather, a, a sort of advanced military balloon from something called Project Mogul that was attempting to build a balloon sensing system that could be floated over and around the Soviet Union to detect atomic bombs, uh, atomic uh, testing. And that it was a UFO. It did not look like any series of technologies that anyone at the Roswell Army Air Base would have recognized. It was a series of like 30 balloons packed with sensors, 100 feet taller than the Washington Monument, 
um, you know, this was not one tiny little balloon that like landed in the ranch. This, this was a pretty major crash site and that the, it was, it was a secret project. The government did sort of lie about what they found and what it was. Um, it, it was a UFO in that the Roswell air base commander was right to think that it could have been a flying saucer because it did not look like any technology he had ever seen before, but was in fact just a, uh, you know, secret other government project. And, and you see that uh, sort of time and again, which is the government uh, sort of covering up what a UFO actually is because it's the government's own secret projects. Um, the CIA now estimates that as much as 50% of UFO sightings in the 1950s are actually just the U-2 spy plane, which again, was a UFO. It was a plane that didn't look like any plane that anyone had ever seen before, flying at an altitude that planes were not known to fly, at speeds planes were not known to fly. Um, and so if you were a commercial airline pilot, you know, flying over Nevada, you absolutely saw a U-2 and thought it was a UFO. Um, and you were right. It just wasn't an alien UFO. And you, and we see that again in places like the, um, the development of the SR-71, the A-12 ox cart, the, the stealth bomber, the stealth fighter, um, and presumably up, uh, up until this day that the government sort of still has secret projects that it's not telling us about, you know, the first flight of the stealth B-21 bomber was actually just this fall. And we, um, you know, there, there are other planes out there that we probably don't know about. So some cloak of this secrecy is just the government's own, own projects. Some chunk of it is the government, uh, obfuscating about what it detects and what its sensors see on technologies from other places that the, um, you know, some chunk of this is adversary technology that's being tested against us, you know, advanced Chinese drones, Russian drones, Iranian drones, that the government doesn't really want to tell us what it sees and what it understands. Where, what you're left with is this question of, is the government covering up meaningful knowledge about UFOs being, you know, alien craft, intelligent civilizations, you know, what people call non-human intelligence or, or extraterrestrials. Um, and I don't really see any meaningful evidence that the government is knowingly covering up that type of conspiracy. Um, in part, because I think John Brennan was probably telling the truth that like, the government is actually covering up its own ignorance uh, that it doesn't know what these UFOs and UAPs actually are. You spend a few chapters on the uh, issue of alien abductions and a guy named John Mack. Um, talk about this era of alien abduction, uh, you know, reports and who John Mack was and, and what his work was about. Yeah, this this ends up being to me one of the most interesting and, and sort of challenging subjects to write about in this book, because you saw in the 1980s uh, and, and 1990s, this wave of public reports about alien abductions. Um, and you know, there are still people who experience this today, um, although it, it seems like it is not as widely reported or talked about as it was during the, the 80s and 90s. And you had a series of people, um, in, including um, Harvard psychiatrist John Mack uh, and, and another guy named Bud Hopkins, a couple of others, look very seriously at this population. John Mack um, 
called them experiencers because uh, he didn't want to sort of prejudice this by talking about, you know, people who had alien abductions. And that what they came away from their studies with was a profound belief that at least many, not all, but many of the people who were reporting these types of experiences were telling the truth, at least as they understood it, that they were, that they had characteristics similar to trauma victims, that they had, you know, characteristics that sort of seemed like what we would now call PTSD, um, that they did not come to this with a shared psychological history, you know, where many of them were, you know, schizophrenic and then reported alien abductions or, um, or, or vice versa, they reported alien abductions and then, um, you know, were diagnosed as schizophrenic. Um, that there were a lot of people who were having these experiences who did not have any shared series of psychological history and did not appear to have any reason to come forward with their experiences. These were not people who were trying to, you know, get a media deal or a book deal. Um, many of these people were actually trying very hard to stay anonymous, that they sort of understood that they would, uh, you know, that they had the potential to lose credibility um, if it came out that they had, you know, believed that they had undergone an alien abduction uh, or alien encounter of some ways. And I think the truth is that we just, we don't really know what has gone on here, that, um, you know, some chunk of people who report alien abductions are are obviously hoaxers, um, you know, that there's sort of a, a long and proud tradition of uh, grifters and con men and, um, you know, people seeking attention uh, by reporting contact with aliens, but not all of them are. And that Jacques Vallée, who is one of the um, sort of scientists who has studied this for uh, decades, really, um, you know, he's he sort of came to believe that there was something, um, you know, sort of probably like psychological or spiritual involved in reporting these alien encounters. Um, you know, again, not necessarily that these are aliens abducting humans, but that there was there was something that was happening to the minds and bodies of these people that we did not yet understand. Garrett, having surveyed the literature and history on UFOs, is there anything you find persuasive? Is there any case study or story that stands out to you as suggesting that there is some alien life out there? Yeah, well, I think part of the challenge of this is untangling what that question actually asks because all of the following are probably true there are aliens out there they're probably too far away for us to know there are there is something real to the UFO and UAP phenomenon. The, you know, the government now calls these UAPs for unidentified anomalous phenomenon. And, um, and, and why did they change the name? So they changed the name uh, for two reasons. One is to try to destigmatize the conversation around UFOs, to decrease the giggle factor and let you know people come forward and say like i saw a uap without someone saying ah you saw a flying saucer um it, and then this the switch in nomenclature from ufo unidentified flying object to uap unidentified anomalous phenomenon 
is also meant to broaden the spectrum to incorporate both things that are not flying because some chunk of this turn out to be what are called USOs, unidentified swimming objects, and also to encompass that not all of them are actually objects, that some of this is phenomenon um, that we don't yet understand. Um, and, and indeed, I think part of, again, the challenge of an untangling this is that it is highly likely, probable, you know, almost certain that there are important mysteries for us to solve here that involve unknown meteorological, astronomical, and atmospheric science that we don't yet understand that could have important, meaningful, and insightful, and world-changing answers to it, even if the answer does not end up being UFOs. So and, the or, the, sorry, even if the answer does not end up being aliens. And that, to me, you know, one of the most intriguing possibilities here is that some chunk of this is going to end up having to do with physics that we don't yet understand. That you, you know, I think I come away from studying this subject with an increased humility and humbleness about how little of our world we understand. That the world is much weirder than we probably give it credit for. And that we probably are pretty early in our understanding of the world around us. That, we, you know, I think we sort of feel like we have science figured out, and that's not actually really the case. That the Harvard astronomy chair, Avi Loeb, uh, points out that in January, the world's oldest woman died. She was a French nun, she was 118 years old. And in her single lifetime, everything that we have learned about relativity and quantum physics, we learned in that single human lifetime. And so imagine what we will learn about physics in the next 100 years, the next 500 years, the next 1,000 years, the next 10,000 years, if our civilization lasts that long. And that, you know, the answers here could be really weird. Um, and, you know, this could be parallel dimensions, interdimensional travel, um, time travel from the past or the future. Um, you know, these could be wormholes that we don't yet understand. I mean, there's a possibility of physics that would truly astound us um, that we are really just beginning to scratch the surface of understanding today. Um, and as just sort of one very concrete example of that, it was literally just this summer that for the first time we saw we saw and detected gravitational waves moving through the universe that bend space-time, that we had theorized that they existed, but did not actually, we had never actually observed them ourselves until this summer. So, you know, imagine what, what weird stuff we might find, you know, in the next thousand years. Well, you mentioned Harvard physicist Avi Loeb, who you write about in the latter part of your book, uh, and that brings it into the current moment because he uh, has a theory about interstellar objects that he suggests could be an alien craft. And he also claims that tiny fragments from a meteor that landed in 2014 near Papua New Guinea are evidence of alien technology. And I believe he is going on a hunt for them um, or has already completed that. What do you make of his work? He has um, gotten a lot of attention, not all of it flattering. Yeah, and, and I think part of the, uh, part of untangling this again is Hollywood and pop culture has given us a, I think, wrong impression of what our first contact scenario will actually be. 
um, you know, the, the sort of first moment that we encounter in alien civilization. It, and there are sort of three scenarios that Hollywood gives us. You have the Jodie Foster contact movie with the very clear, unambiguous radio message from outer space. You have the sort of Independence Day movie, take me to your leader scenario of the alien spacecraft appearing over the White House and either, you know, trying to befriend us, warn us about, you know, nuclear war or invade us and conquer us. And then you have the E.T. scenario of the sort of marooned interstellar explorer, you know, who crashes here. Um, and almost certainly our first contact will be much more ambiguous and much more mundane. And what I mean by that is we're almost certainly going to first see not a radio message or alien spacecraft over the White House. What we're going to see is a piece of space trash passing through our solar system. And that, you know, Avi Loeb compares it to, you know, the equivalent of a empty plastic bag blowing through our cosmic backyard that, you know, we're going to look up with our, you know, telescopes and equipment and someday see a piece of trash blow through uh, and we're going to say like, well, that's not from our Walmart. Like whose Walmart is that from? And what, what we're going to be sort of left with is this really ambiguous, you know, is that, you know, where's that from? Is that civilization still around? Is it, you know, is it hostile? Is it friendly? Like, what do, you know, what do we think about this? And Loeb bases that theory in part on uh, this object that came through our solar system in 2017 that, uh, that astronomers refer to as Amuamua. And it was the first ever interstellar object that we had ever detected. Um, and again, when we talk about like our knowledge of the world and the universe being new, in 2017, we had never seen an interstellar object enter our solar system. You know, something from another galaxy arrive here. We now understand that they're pretty frequent, that we sort of see or detect one every year or every couple of years. Um, and that this object in 2017, Muamua, we got only a passing glimpse at. Um, it was already moving away from us and our sun before we detected it. We have very incomplete data about it. And it is either a very weird sort of long cigar-shaped object tumbling end over end, or it is an incredibly flat pancake-like object tumbling end over end. And we don't know which it is. We will never know which it is because it's already gone and we have, we'll never have better data on it. But Avi Loeb uh, surmises that it could be that piece of space trash. It could be, um, you know, basically a solar sail that was a probe from some previous civilization or far off civilization that we have no knowledge of that was passing through on its way, um, you know, through the solar system. Um, and that we might have sort of already missed our first interstellar visitor. Let's move from the realm of ufology to the political realm, which is one that um, you have been covering uh, for many years. We are living in an age where conspiracy theories get traction in the most remarkable ways and spread with remarkable speed. 
whether it's microchips and vaccines to track us or, you know, what have you. How does what you've learned in your research into the uh, the enduring mystery attraction and viral spread of UFO um, ideas, how does that, what do we learn from that about the appeal and spread of conspiracy theories in our yeah. politics today? Well, we, we talked about earlier, um, you know, the appearance of sort of how UFO conspiracies in the 80s and 90s end up inspiring, I think, the the first arrival of the deep state in our political discourse. And from there, there is a much more direct line to our modern politics than I think most people realize. Um, and I don't think you get January 6th without the foundation of these dark UFO conspiracies in the 1990s. Now, what do I mean by that? I, I am not saying that everyone who believes in uh, in UFOs is part of the far-right fringe. I'm saying that the far-right fringe was deeply inspired by the UFO conspiracies of the 1980s and 90s, and that there was one particular figure who I write about in the book who was uh, a guy named Bill Cooper, who was one of the sort of founding UFO conspiracists of the 1980s. He claimed to be a former naval intelligence officer in Vietnam who was uh, privy to uh, secret documents about the US government's relationship to alien civilizations and tried to sort of hype up this conspiracy in the 1980s he became one of the founding voices on the far right talk radio circuit in the late 80s and 90s. Ran a wildly popular conservative talk radio show that he, sort of as he himself drifted more from UFO conspiracies into UFO into the far right fringe, becoming a tax protester and the like, and inspires along the way a young public radio a public access talk show host in Austin, Texas named Alex Jones and becomes sort of the mentor and inspiration for Alex Jones. The two of them engage in a sort of ever worsening small stakes feud over conspiracy theories in the late 1990s and early 2000s. They have a real split after 9-11, as Alex Jones embraces what we sort of now recognize as 9-11 trutherism. And he goes, uh, the, the two of them have a real falling out. And then actually Bill Cooper in December of 2001 is killed in a police shootout when police come to arrest him. And he opens fire on the deputies and shoots one of them and is killed by the return fire. So, and so he, he essentially becomes a victim of his own propaganda. He is a victim of his own propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. And becomes sort of an inspiration for the far right. Um, there is this sort of incredible moment where um, he, in the, you know, mid 1990s uh as he's doing this big radio national radio show from his bunker compound in arizona two men stop by to talk to him about these conspiracy theories and to share uh a, a copy of uh, a book called the turner diaries that is sort of one of the foundational documents of far-right white supremacy movements and at the end of their conversation, uh, they they say to Bill Cooper, uh, watch Oklahoma City. And it turns out, uh, as it becomes later clear, this is Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, and they are sort of on their way 
to bomb the Oklahoma City Federal Building, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, um, and, you know, are inspired along the way by Bill Cooper. Um, and that I think you don't get the modern far-right fringe conspiracy theories without the the foundation of the UFO conspiracies that people like Bill Cooper laid in the 1990s. How um, do you explain why far why the far right is so drawn to these kind of conspiracy theories that are demonstrably false, um, often fantastical, often speak of you know kind of a parallel reality that no one but they have access to. What's the connection? Yeah, so uh, I, you know, to be clear, like the left has all of its own weird conspiracies. The 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 far right ones, you know, are obviously a major animating force of our current politics. Um, from you know the deep state to you know COVID the stolen vaccine, ele- the to, stolen elections, and the stolen elections and the big lie. Um, and I think that to me, the problem that I have with government conspiracy theories as someone who has covered government and national security for 20 years is that they all presuppose a level of competence, forethought, and planning that is not on display in the work of the rest of the U.S. government. Um, and and I have um, a, a sort of a, a lot of trouble uh believing that the sort of same government that you know supposedly is putting tiny microchips in every vaccine uh with Bill Gates's help uh and is keeping alien spacecraft and bodies under area 51 is somehow the same government that we see on display sort of day in day out that like does not seem on many days capable of turning on a computer correctly in the first place. Yes, as anybody who has uh, called help government helplines uh, can confirm. We are now uh, drifting into a new election year. Um, and uh, as we speak of conspiracy theories, probably the main purveyor of them uh, uh, Donald Trump is the front runner in the Republican primary. What do you and you have having covered the national security world and you are um, have reported extensively on James Comey um, and his tangles with Trump uh, this is the former FBI director. What do you think happens if Trump is reelected to our society and I guess really our democracy. Yeah, so um, I'm actually going to tie this answer back to UFOs, um, which is in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, there is something called the Drake equation, which is the sort of scientific outline and estimation of the variables that calculate how many intelligent civilizations there are out there. It has to do with the number of habitable planets and the number of civilization, you know, the percentage of planets on which life evolves, sort of, et cetera, et cetera. The big variable in the Drake equation, scientists call L, which stands for the length of time that an intelligent civilization lasts. And the thing that worries me is L may turn out to be a pretty short number that if um, you, you look around the world today and factor in, you know, climate change, factor in, um, you know, struggling governmental institutions, you know, factor in the possibility of something like nuclear war or, you know, runaway AI 
um, or even just the rise of the sort of corrupting influence of mis and disinformation, um, there's no guarantee that our civilization is going to be a particularly long one. Um, and we are really in our infancy as a human species, as a human civilization, and certainly, you know, in in American country and American democracy. Um, and my concern about Donald Trump is that he is really bad for L, um, that he is really bad for the longevity of human civilization. Um, he's really bad for the longevity of American democracy. Um, and that, you know, he, his reelection is, is not just a grave threat to American democracy and, you know, system of a functioning constitution and three branches of government as we know it. Um, but what he would do to sort of the larger civilizational challenges that we have to confront right now, um, you know, from climate change to misinformation to disinformation to the rise of AI um, and, uh, you know, a bunch of other things that, you know, we, re we have a lot of questions we as a species and as a country need to get right right now. And Donald Trump is the wrong answer to all of them. That's a pretty bleak assessment. And that that also means it's a lot more on the line in this election than most people think when they pull a lever for one candidate over the other. Yeah, and I think the media is not doing, I think, a particularly good job of trying to make those stakes as clear as they should be. Um, and, you know, we see, you know, you see some of this reporting um, playing out in ways that are, you know, to me as a journalist and as a historian, pretty troubling, where you see sort of the media day to day, you know, trying to equate the political challenges of Joe Biden and Donald Trump uh, in sort of the same breath and at the same magnitude, you know, where Donald Trump is saying that he would, you know, activate the U.S. military to, you know, round up dissidents uh, all across the United States. But also, Joe Biden is wearing sneakers a lot more than he used to. So in 2024, America has a big choice to make. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Garrett Graff, I want to thank you for joining us again on the Vermont Conversation. Always a pleasure. Thanks, David. Journalist Garrett Graff's newest book is UFO, the inside story of the U.S. government's search for alien life here and out there.